Welcome to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. And a sad sigh goes out in the crowd as we've moved past Dave's favorite chapter in all the Bible, which is 1 Corinthians 15. So I promise I won't read all of 1 Corinthians 15 again, though I highly recommend earmarking that in your Bible. I'm Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to do a time of teaching. So if you've got your Bible, grab it and turn to 1 Corinthians 16, the last chapter in the longest letter in the New Testament. So we are almost there. The end is near, but there's some important things to talk about. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seat back in front of you. We'll be on page 1022, so you can follow along with us. Uh, that's a great way to just get those pages turning. I love to hear the pages turning. This book is full of life, and so let the pages bring that life to you. If you don't own a Bible, take, take that Bible home with you. That's a gift from us to you. Um, we think it's the most important book that you could have, and uh, you should read this book more than any other book. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, chapter 16. Now, uh, one uh, quick just pastoral note, tonight at 6 o'clock here in the building, we are dedicating our prayer room, so if you would be interested in coming and praying uh, in that room, praying for that room, and just starting to use that room for what it's meant to be about, which is praying for our city, our world, uh, and our church, uh, come on at 6 o'clock and come, we'll just have a sweet time of, of prayer. Uh, Zoe's done a fantastic job of preparing that, so thank you Zoe, and we're excited to use that room often to bring God closer to us. So we can pray anywhere. Uh, we don't need a prayer room, but a prayer room will help us move past the distraction, and we know when we're in there what we're about. So I always say with my boys, uh, before we pray, I say, uh, heaven and earth collide when we pray. Heaven and earth collide. So in that room, there'll be a lot of colliding of heaven and earth, and I'm very excited uh, to dedicate that and begin using it. So uh, that's uh, one note there, and and uh, and now let's study First Corinthians 16. We're going to be in the first 12 chapters today. I'm going to read the whole thing just so you understand what all, all of uh, chapter 16 is. Paul, his sort of closing remarks, and if you've been with us. We've been talking about moving in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. That's been the title of our sermon series. And so Paul's had some hard things to say. And, and one of the big problems in Corinth was there was divisions. Um, there were people that were thinking their thing was the most important thing. Um, and other people's thing was not as important. And there, were, there was a lack of solidarity. And so today we're going to really get a beautiful picture of, of how Paul sees the church as unified. Not just the church in Corinth, but churches in all the cities um, of Greece, and not just in Greece, but all the cities of Asia Minor, not just all the cities of Asia Minor, but also Jerusalem, and how all of the things God is doing should come up underneath this unified mission of God. And, and um, one of the things we get to talk about today, um, we don't always talk about it, but when the Word brings us to it, we talk about it, we get to talk about money. And how money actually has the power, well, it's got power, and it's got the power to unify us. Now, I realized at a very early age the power of money, and I was very attuned to it, probably more than most kids. 
And I realized that power has, or money has the power to do one of two things. It can either divide us or can unify us. And um, just tell you a little story about that. Uh, just this weird sense I had as a kid. Um, and my parents would affirm this if you asked them about it. Like, I was just always super conscious of, like, the things that we had as a family. My dad was a su- su- successful businessman. And so um, from time to time, there'd be opportunities to sort of elevate our style of living. And every time this happened, I just, something felt off to me. I remember one time, my dad just got a brand new company car. I must have been 10 years old. New company car. Um, it was an Oldsmobile. <laughs> Does anybody remember Oldsmobile? Yeah, okay. Nobody else raised their hand except Tom. So it wasn't that nice because it didn't, didn't make it, okay? They didn't make it. So um, I don't even know if they, I, they probably, st- I don't know. I haven't seen an Oldsmobile for a while. Maybe they're still out there. So we're not talking about, you know, he didn't drive up in a Tesla or some super fancy car. But I remember he drove in with just a pretty, you know, middle-of-the-road car. But it was an upgrade from what we had before. And I broke down in tears as a 10-year-old. My parents were, like, so confused. Like, what? What in the world? Like, what happened? This is exciting. New car. And we didn't even buy it as a company car. And finally, they worked through my silence and my inability to express myself. And they realized I was upset because I thought having this new fancy car would make me feel superior to my friends. That it would create division. That, oh, now we're that family with the Oldsmobile. And I had such a deep concern. I didn't want it. I was, I was embarrassed. I didn't want to be that family with the Oldsmobile, the brand new car. So from an early time in my life, I've had this sense of, of the power of money. Some people love that. They love using their money to create distinction between them and the rest of the world. I'm so glad I'm not like those Ford drivers. Look at my Oldsmobile. But some people use their money to unify, to actually create solidarity with those who might not have as much as them. And so money's not bad. I want to make sure you don't hear that. Money is not bad. But it does have power. And the question is, how will we use that power? How will you use the money God's given you? To divide, to distinguish yourself, or to be unified and lift someone else up? That's what Paul's going to be talking about today. So, there are no chapter breaks in Paul's original letter. In fact, there's no punctuation, there's no spaces. You know, paper was expensive, ink was expensive. And so, 1,500 years later, someone came along and for our benefit put chapter titles to help us sort of navigate our way and, and, and created verse distinctions. So, I want to start by reading the last verse of last week. So, Paul has just spent... If you, if you don't know what 1 Corinthians 15 is about, that whole chapter is about the resurrection of the dead, which is to say, you only live twice. 
You live once, you die, and then Christ will, uh, God will raise you from the dead just like he did Christ by the power of the Spirit. And the seed you sow, Paul says, that seed of faith, whatever you have faith in will grow into a tree for eternity. Now that tree could be a tree of life, like Christ's life, an eternity with God, or an eternity separated from God. So that's 1 Corinthians 15. It's, it's a glorious celebration of what the promises of God are. And then he finishes the chapter. He says, because of the resurrection... He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. All that you do, all that you sacrifice, all that seed that you sow, the faith in Christ and His promises that you can't quite yet fully see, but that He has promised and He has secured through the resurrection so that He is the first fruit. So you know this fruit bear, or this tree bears fruit. All of that will not be in vain because of the resurrection. So you don't have to worry that if you sow something and you don't quite see the fruit even in your life, don't worry. It's not in vain. I don't think it's an accident that he immediately shifts to what we'll see in a second, which Paul recounting a collection, an offering that the church in Corinth is going to make to another church. Yeah, you might not see where this money is going because it's going across the Mediterranean to Jerusalem. But don't worry. Whatever you sow, whatever you give, will not come back void. God will use it. If it's given in faith, he will use it. It will not be in vain. Not a surprise. And so he'll say, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, in every area of your life. And so then this next chapter, chapter 16, will illuminate some practical considerations for us to excel in being steadfast. That is, having a long-term, lifelong effect for Jesus. And how to excel in being immovable. That is, how to not be wishy-washy. How to be theologically and biblically sound, no matter where the waves and the tide of culture and popularity might want to take us. So how do we excel in that? And he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna highlight this key ethos that I already talked about, which is governing all of what he says, which is mutuality, that's anti-divisiveness, and solidarity with worldwide Christianity. This is going to be one of the keys to being immovable and being steadfast. So listen for those keys as we read chapter 16. You ready? Paul writes, now, about the collection for the saints. He's talking about the saints, those fellow Christians in Jerusalem. Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. Again, this is what Paul says to all the churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside, set something aside, and save in keeping with how he is prospering, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. So Paul's writing this. He's in Ephesus, he's writing it back, but he's planning to come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. It is suitable for me to go as well. They will travel with me. 
I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the entire winter with you so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't, want to see, um, I don't want to see you just now in passing, since I hope to spend some time with you. If the Lord allows, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, because a wide door for effective ministry has been opened for me. Yet many oppose me. If Timothy comes, see that if he comes to Corinth before me, see that he has nothing to fear while with you, because he is doing the Lord's work, just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me because I am expecting him with the brothers. So Timothy was one of uh, Paul's apprentices and somebody that Paul had trained up. And so Paul would send him off to churches and to do uh, and, and bring uh, knowledge and truth and, and letters and all these things. So, so if Timothy comes, treat him like you'd treat me is basically what he's saying. And then send him on his way because I'm expecting him here in Ephesus. Verse 12. Now, about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has opportunity. Now, you might not pick this up, so let me just make a note here. Apollos was their favorite teacher in Corinth. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of the series, like people were saying, I'm with Apollos, and some were saying, I'm with Paul. And Paul's like, no, me and Apollos, we're on the same team. That's part of why he brings up Apollos here. He's like, I talked to Apollos. Me and him are good. We're bros. And he's not able to come now, but I just want you to know we have solidarity, me and Apollos. He's reminding of what he said earlier in the letter. So I urged him to come, but he's unable to come right now. He'll come when he has the opportunity. Paul goes on, verse verse 13. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of uh, Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Acacia. And have developed themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. I am delighted to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present because these men have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. The churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, they send greetings warmly in the Lord along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting, or this greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. O oh Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. So we'll get to the uh, verses 13 to 24 next week. But I wanted to read the whole thing. Do you feel the ethos? Do you feel what Paul is driving for? Do you feel what he's trying to remind them of? Do you feel that? The mutuality, the solidarity, reminding them of all that God is doing, not just in Corinth, but all over the Mediterranean world. He's trying to give them a big picture of what God's doing because they've gotten so small-minded. They've gotten so locked into their own problems. They're fighting over little things. And when we're fighting over little things, the best thing we can do is zoom out and remember, we're not doing this alone. There's so much that God is doing in the world. So I want to talk first about um, these big picture antidotes to this kind of small thinking. 
And then I'm going to drill down into this idea of how giving, giving generously, is so important. It's so important to building mutuality and solidarity and avoiding division. So big picture. Um, one author I read this week said it this way. He said, chapter 16 gives us the antidotes for the poison of parochialism. Parochialism is small-mindedness. And it's funny because it actually comes from the word parish. And if you don't know what a parish is, that's what they used to call local churches. So you'd live in a parish, um, which is sort of like a neighborhood. So you could say, like, Sedaris is the parish church for Wallingford. And, and so it's parishism, which is what? It's thinking that your own parish is the totality of the world. <laughs> Seattleites struggle with this. They fight for their own neighborhood. What neighborhood do you live in? I like live on the border of Fremont and Finney Ridge myself, and I never know which one I'm supposed to be a part of because there's some civil war sometimes, you know. Who gets the sidewalk first? I mean, like, every sidewalk is supposed to get fixed, but, you know, like, Seattleites, <laughs> they get pretty hung up on their neighborhood. Turns out, so did the Corinthians. So thinking about what God is doing only in your little area or your little local church is parochialism, parishism, small-mindedness, thinking that your small problems are the end of the world. Now, we can do this both as individuals, we can do this as family units, we can do this as a local church, we can do this as a neighborhood, we can do this as a city. We do this as a country. Like, there's so many ways to fall into this trap, and what Paul's trying to help them do is to zoom out and see all the things God's doing so that they don't get stuck in their small-mindedness. So these are antidotes to this poison of small thinking. And what are they? There's four big things Paul's going to say. One, he says, give to other churches. (laughs) I'm going to take a collection for Jerusalem. Most of you will never, ever go to Jerusalem. But we're going to give them some money because they need it. So this would be like participating in other ministries and other events that other ministries or other churches put on. This is the way we could participate in giving to other churches. We could give to them financially. We could give to them our support for the things they're trying to do, even here in Seattle. Number two, we could give internationally to ministries and missionaries and churches. And we do that at Sedaris. We give to international ministries in multiple continents, other churches. Paul says, yes, give it away. You'll never see, but trust me, it will not return void. Your giving will not be in vain. God will use it if it's given in faith and given to people of the gospel. Three, it's not only about giving, it's also about thinking. Think about others. You could map out all the other churches and ministries in the neighboring towns or the neighboring neighborhood. All the things God's doing. We could just map that out in Seattle, all the things God's doing. Paul says, this is what you need to do. This is what he's doing when he's bringing up all these other ministries and all these other parts of the Mediterranean. And then the fourth thing he'll, he'll encourage is, I believe, traveling. I'm not traveling for just pleasure but traveling to visit and encourage other Christians. You see him doing that? Well, Timothy's going to come along, and Apollos will come when he can, and I'm going to come 
he's encouraging traveling from ministry to ministry, area to area, church to church, so that we might encourage one another and be reminded of the big things that God is doing, not just through our church, but throughout his entire mission in the world. So maybe you enjoy traveling. That's great. When you travel, make, make it a point. Say you're going to go to Boston next weekend. Make it a point. I'm going to go to church on Sunday. I did that when I visited Boston. Visited a church. It was an amazing experience. Turns out they worship Jesus over there in Boston too. Fantastic. It was so encouraging for me. I got to meet other Christians. So it doesn't mean you have to go just on a mission trip. But when you're traveling, make an effort to connect with other Christians. Encourage them. Be encouraged by them. See what God is doing all over the world. It's an amazing experience. That you could go to any place in this world, nearly any place, and you can find a worshiper of Jesus. Raise your hand. If you had that experience where you're just in another country, another continent, another city, and you've met other Christians, you'd be like, wow, the family of God is big. It's incredible. But you've got to seek it out. You've got to plan for it. Paul is encouraging that big picture to help us zoom out. And Paul models it. He models it. We're taking a collection for Jerusalem. Get ready for that. I'm going to come. Be ready when I come. Be thinking about the church in Jerusalem before I get there. He talks about the Macedonians and the, uh, the Ephesians, and he talks about um, the churches in Asia, and then he reminds them of some of the missionaries that they support and are out there working. They've got Timothy and Titus, Stephanus, Aquila, Priscilla. He's bringing up all these people to remind them they're part of something so much bigger. And that's what you do when you feel like your problems are so big. You zoom out and you remember all the other things God's doing. So, when you do these things, when I do these things, when we do these things as a church, it will melt away the butter. Lenny, just write that down and then I just want to see how long it takes you to figure out. It's like, it'll melt away the butter. What's melting away the butter? When you put the cold piece of butter on the mashed potatoes, it melts away. That's what's zooming out and seeing all the things that God does. All these hard, annoying problems. You know butter, so annoying. It seems like, what are you going to do? Like, who, why is butter, why is it so hard? <laughs> like, why, why, you know? But when you put it on a real nice, hot, pile of mashed potatoes. I'm definitely getting excited about Thanksgiving. You can tell here. I'm, I'm, I need to focus. But when you do what Paul is encouraging us to do, these small problems melt away like cold butter on your mashed potatoes. Now, if you do this work of zooming out, thinking about other Christians, giving something of your plenty to the want around the world or around the city or to other churches, to other ministries, if you do that and it doesn't melt your butter, if it doesn't melt your butter, it probably means that your mashed potatoes are lukewarm. What do I mean by that? First of all, I'll say nobody likes lukewarm mashed potatoes. Can I get an amen? Even Jesus. Jesus doesn't like lukewarm mashed potatoes. He actually said that to the church in Laodicea. Go read it. Revelation chapter 3. He's talking about water, but we can apply it to mashed potatoes. 
Nobody likes the lukewarm, not even Jesus. And if your butter's not melting, if, if you're thinking about other churches, if you're giving to other ministries, and yet you still are just totally centered on, on the small problems of yourself or your family or your church, there might be something wrong with the mashed potatoes. So we've got, we got to deal with that. We've got to ask, what aren't you quite seeing about who God is and what he's done and what he will do? A great place to go to that, to warm up those mashed potatoes. Guess what I'm going to say? Somebody yelled out. Great place to go to warm up the mashed potatoes. 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> That's exactly. Paul lays out the microwave. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Like, if your mashed potatoes aren't very hot and the butter ain't melting when you're thinking about all the things God's doing, you don't really know what he's doing. He's saving people all over the world. People that you'll get to spend eternity with at the resurrection. That's how you warm up the mashed potatoes. Then you come back to 1 Corinthians 16 and you try these things again. You think about other churches and it should melt away that pesky butter. And then you eat and it's good. Now it doesn't mean that these small problems aren't real problems. They're real. God wants to meet you in it. And one of the ways he wants to meet it by diffusing the butter into the goodness of his promises. But you've got to know how good those are. You've got to warm up. You might have lukewarm mashed potatoes. So I want to share with you some reports of some things that are happening in this city and this world. And this is wild. I did this this week. I was like, if Paul's doing it, I should do it. I don't do this enough. I mean, you heard about what Lynn and the uh, foster care team is doing. It's just one thing. There's so many good things that God is doing in this city, around the world, that we get to be a part of. So I'm, I'm not exaggerating. This week only, the last six days, the last six days, this week only, I want to read you a list of the ministry leaders who I talk to personally. I want you to hear. I want that, that butter to melt away. I want you to think about these other ministries. I want you to, in your mind, pray for them as I say their names. I spent hours with a pastor named Dave Elif at Roots Community Church up here in Roosevelt. Good things are happening in Roosevelt. I spent hours with a guy named Daniel Engelhart, pastor of the Mountain Church down in Des Moines. God saved that church from what seemed to be certain demise. He brought it back to life. <laughs> Praise be to God. I talked to Kathy Gisquet. Some of you know Kathy. She was up here with Vula a bit ago. I talked to her this week. She's over here at University Presbyterian Church. I talked to Doug Bunnell at First, church, or First Presbyterian Church of Bellingham. I talked to him this week. He gave me encouragement and support as we prepare for Miles' memorial service. I talked to David So, at Community Church of Seattle, as we're working with him on a partnership. I talked to Glenn Kleinkleck, the founder of Crew Inner City, who we support as a church. The founder was out here in Seattle and he met with me. He lives in New York. I met with Glenn. Incredible things happening with Crew Inner City. I talked to Derek Groh from Minneapolis this week, also out here on a trip with Crew Inner City. I talked to Amanda, Amanda, who is one of the missionaries we support that's in New York City working for Crew Inner City. 
I talked to Jeff Neuenschwander at Central Community Church, who we partner with, a sister church of ours. I met with a pastor and we prayed for another pastor in our neighborhood who's struggling. And we prayed for him. And then I heard from, I heard from Kathy that Manichair, Pastor Manichair at the Iranian Christian Church in Athens, who I visited back in March, he needs some money. He needs to move to a new neighborhood in order to take care of his aging father-in-law. He needs 475 U.S. dollars a month in additional support. Kathy told me about this. So we can pray for Manichair on another continent who maybe could use our help as a church. Wow. Friends, God, that's all this week. God is doing so much good work in the world. He's doing so many different things through so many different churches and so many different ministries, both here in this city, in this country, and around the world. Friends, God is using Sedaris Church to bless, to encourage, to build up churches here and afar. This stuff's happening because of you guys. Zoom out. See what God's doing through your generosity, through your steadfast, through your immovability. Isn't that incredible? That's all in the last six days for just a small little church here in Seattle. God's doing so many things. He's connected us in so many ways. We're part of something so much bigger than just Sedaris Church. We're part of a thousands upon thousands of years of movement of God to gather his people, to save, to restore, to redeem, and to bring heaven to earth. Is the butter melting? Do your problems feel smaller? Do you feel encouraged? That's what Paul's doing. He's like, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. 14 chapters of work Paul's laid out. So it doesn't mean that we don't have to do the work, but when we zoom out and see all that God's doing and all the ways he's connected us, man, do those problems feel a little bit smaller. Praise God. This isn't up to us. It's up to God. God's so much bigger than we are. He's doing so many more things than just what he's doing here. Yet we celebrate what he's doing here. Now, Paul in the first few verses of chapter 16 is going to tell us one of the primary ways in which we get to participate in what he's doing around the world and what he's doing in this city and what he's doing at Sedaris Church. One of the primary ways. This isn't sort of a secondary way. It's a primary way. Paul leads with it. And that is giving of money generously. Money matters. Jesus talked about money more than anything. Paul talks about money. Money matters. Not in eternity, but it matters right now to accomplish the things of God. So it matters. Jesus is the one who says, it's an indicator of what's going on in your heart. So if you were to look at your bank statement, if you look at your credit card report, you could just very quickly figure out what does your heart get most excited about? You know, after we work through survival things, I need to eat and I need uh, shelter and I need, uh, you know, probably to buy toothpaste would be good. But then like after that, <laughs> like then add up all those things, create percentages. This is probably where your heart gets most excited about. 
So Jesus says it's an indicator of your heart. And Paul says it's a vehicle for God's kingdom work. The Lord's work uses money to accomplish its ends. So the question then, as we now we're going to get more specific to the giving part of this passage, is how should we think about giving? How should we think about giving? Now there's going to be some principles in here that Paul is using to talk about a collection that was made to give away to a church in an, on another continent. Okay? In Jerusalem. So they're in Greece, across the sea. Now, so he's not just talking here about giving to the local church, but the principles that he is going to use here, I think are principles that we use in every kind of giving that we do. And that's sort of how the Bible is. You, you, you start with a specific, he's describing this collection they're making for Jerusalem, and in the describing, we can extract principles that we could use in other instances, whether that's us giving to a church in Athens, or whether it's us giving even to our local church, Sedaris, or us giving to a ministry, right? So, so you want to be able to apply these principles in multiple scenarios, is what I'm trying to say. Now, what's the principle? Now, I just got to say this to lead in. Does anybody know what the song of the year at the Country Music Awards was? Does anybody know? Do we have no country fans? I'll pray for you. <laughs> country music. Oh, it's a great genre. It's a great genre. Okay. I only watched one award, and it was the first award given. It's a song called By Dirt. You know this song, By Dirt? If you don't know the song, you can look it up. Quite a catchy tune. I mean, it's the song of the year, guys. Must be good. Now, when the first time I ever heard this song, I was like, yes! Like, as a pastor, I was like, great! He's really given, he's given me a little shout-out. Then I was thinking about it again. I was like, this, if Paul heard this song, he'd be, he would be so upset. So then I got upset. <laughs> okay, so I just want to read you the lyrics. And then we'll see how different what Paul says about money is than what... I can't even remember who wrote this song. I apologize <laughs> to the writer of the song. Now, often in Nashville, the people that sing it aren't the people that write it. So it's okay that we've forgotten uh, does anyone remember who this band is? Come on. There's got to be one country fan in here. By Dirt, Song of the Year. Okay, it goes like this. The song goes, A few days before he turned 80, he was sitting out back in a rocker. He said, What you been up to lately? Now, I'm, I'm assuming this is like a grandfather talking to the songwriter. Okay. What have you been up to lately? I told him, Chasing a dollar. And in between sips of coffee, he poured this wisdom out. Clever. These country songs are so clever. Poured this wisdom out. He said, if you want my two cents on making a dollar count, buy dirt. Find the one you can't live without. Get a ring. Let your knee hit the ground. Do what you love, but call it work. And throw a little money in the plate at church. <laughs> That's the part I used to be like, great. And I'm like, wait. What? That's bad advice. <laughs> Send your prayers up and your roots down deep. Add a few limbs to your family tree. Watch their pencil marks. I agree with that. And the grass in your yard all grow up. Because the truth about it is, it all goes by real quick. 
You can't buy happiness, but you can buy dirt. I was mentioning this song to Pastor Ryan, and he said, oh, no, I wasn't mentioning it. Pastor Ryan mentioned something about money. I said, anything you want me to tell the church about money? He said, well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, money is dirt. And I said, you wouldn't believe the song I'm about to sing. <laughs> I was like, well, seriously, dude. It was fun. Okay, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, money is dirt. This songwriter says, buy dirt. Buy money? Yeah, that's kind of actually what money is. You use your money to buy more money. Jesus is the one that said, don't store up your money in storehouses that moth and rust destroy. Store them up in heaven. So you've got to ask, what wisdom do you want to follow? I'm sure this is a, a good grandfather trying to make a good point about investing in real estate is a good idea. Sure. But money is dirt. And so, as I thought about that, I was like, if the best advice you've ever gotten about how to give generously to the mission of God is this, and throw a little money in the plate at church, you've got a lot of work to do. That's not what being generous is. That's not what Paul talks about. This is a, in the moment, what do I got left in my pockets, which nobody has anymore, so this is a really bad strategy. But like, you know, at the last minute, I guess I'll tip the preacher. It's a pretty good sermon. I'll give him a few bucks, like you tip, like you tip your uh, server at, at the restaurant. No. What does Paul say? What does Paul say? Well, look at what Paul says. Here it goes. 16.1. Now, about the collection for the saints, meaning he's already talked about this last time he was here, which was years ago. So we've been planning to give generously for years. Years of thinking about Jerusalem. Who's Jerusalem? The church that founded every other church. The great sending church, which is Jerusalem. He says, we've been thinking about this for years, guys. We've been thinking about it for years. Now let me bring that back up to you, he says. Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches to do. We're all in this together, he says. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside something and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collection will need to be made when I come. He's saying, listen, I don't know, like when we read, he doesn't know exactly when he's going to come. He said, just keep saving, preparing for when I come so that when I come, it won't just be the thing in your pocket to give. He's saying, set it aside, save so that when I come, you won't even need to think about it. You know exactly what money you've set aside to bless the church in Jerusalem. See how different that is? And throw a little money that you got in your pockets in the plate as it comes around. Okay. Then he says, when I arrive, verse 3, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go, then I'll travel with as well. So they're going to collect some money, and then they're going to send this money with some chosen, approved people that can be trusted. So there's no wire transfer back then, no Venmo. And so we would take the money, a group of them, to protect it, and we are going to travel at great expense to bring this gift to the church in Jerusalem. See how beautiful that is? That's amazing. Okay. So I gleaned from this nine principles of giving that I want to pass on to you. Just from these few verses. That we could apply then in our own 
giving of generosity. You ready? Number one, what does he say? In verse two, he says, each of you is to set something aside. He doesn't say just the wealthy or just the poor or just those who aren't dealing with certain transactions or in certain stages of life. He says each, every single one of you, every single one of you should be participating in generosity and the blessing of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Each of you. So that's the first principle. Every person needs to be thinking about this. Second principle. He says, on the first day of the week, set something aside and save. On, so, what is this? This is systematic generosity. Meaning it's, it's not being just in the moment, though that can happen, where you feel a momentary, I just feel like I want to bless this person. But you're actually thinking and setting up a system of giving so that at any moment you're ready to give when the need arises. So are you, each and every one of you, thinking about generosity systematically? Or are you just spending everything that God has given you, and hopefully in the moment when a need arises, maybe you have a little extra? Listen, I've, I've had to grow in all these things. I never thought systematically about giving until later in my life. Okay. Principle three. Principle three. Look what he says. Okay, so you're supposed to set something aside systematically and save in keeping with how he is prospering. In keeping with how he is prospering. Other translations say it different ways. Uh, Another one says, how you've fared. How you've fared. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, some of you have fared well. Some of you have hit jackpot. That could be through your natural dispositions, your IQ score. Some of you were raised in families where you were set up for success. Some of you have fared really well. Some of you haven't fared so well. Some of you have come from difficult beginnings. Some of you have struggled to find jobs. So not everybody will give the same amount. That's what he's saying. Based on how you fared, based on how prosperous you've been, that will determine how much you set aside. So this is a principle for percentage giving. So if you make $200,000 a year, 10% of that is going to be more than if you make $50,000 a year. So this is a principle here for giving a percentage of how you've prospered. I think that's important to say. is relative that's why each one has to pray about this each one has to be honest with how they've fared each one not doesn't need to think about their friend who might be prospering the same and what kind of car they have or house they have but they need to be thinking about the church in Jerusalem what can they give it's going to take some sacrifice Paul says But you need to understand how you've prospered and be honest about that as you think about systematically saving to be a blessing to others. So number four. Number four. Um, I I don't think this is an accident that Paul connects right after he talks about the collection with the fact that he's coming to visit them. I don't think this is an accident. 
One of the things Paul's doing here is reminding them, I'm not asking you to give to some anonymous organization. This is me. I was with you. I planted the church, Paul says, and I'm coming and I'm going to visit you. Our giving is not detached from personal relationship. God came in the flesh. God modeled for us incarnational ministry. So I think Paul is, is very intentionally trying to say, guys, I'm going to come personally and, and, and to receive the collection because I can be trusted. You know me, guys. So Paul, I think, is acknowledging that he's not asking for money randomly, but he's telling them that this money will be used well. He's like, I'm going to be accountable to you by my presence. You can ask me questions about how this money will be used. There's going to be transparency because we have a personal relationship. So that's what you want to look for. You want to, you want to give to things where there's accountability, where there's personal relationship, I would say. Which brings me to my fifth point. I would avoid giving to televangelists. I would avoid giving even to podcasters. I would avoid giving to radio ministries as your primary gift. Because you have no idea who those people are. They might have good ideas, but you don't know them. And Paul is very clearly saying, I'm going to take such expense to come visit you because I'm not just asking for your money. I'm asking for relationship. We live in a time like no other where it's so easy to get your message out or your content out, but have no accountability or no personal relationship to the people that are giving you the money. It's so easy. It's a really good business model. I don't have to hear any of your... Like, I could just become a podcaster and keep asking you to give, and I don't have to be responsible to you at all. If you have a problem, you, you don't even know where I live. You can send me an email. I won't respond. We've got to avoid that. I think we want to give to people we have relationship with so that we can, to, to the best of our ability, see how accountable that money is being used. Six. I think we should avoid giving to ministries who seem to be overly competitive, overly combative, uncooperative, and... i got a note here. I can't read it. Oh, <laughs> Well, I'll just say, and snarky. And snarky. Remember when I mentioned Paul in verse 12 brings up our brother Apollos. Paul is intentionally saying, avoid leaders, because there were leaders, remember, in Corinth who were challenging Paul's authority and trying to change the things that Paul had taught and teaching new things and saying, that Paul doesn't really know. He's sort of antiquated and so he brings up Apollos to say, like, guys, people like me and Apollos, we have a brotherhood. We have friendships. We're not lone wolves. We have much bigger ministry even than just yours. We're, we're not selfish. And Paul again and again is trying to show that. Yes, he's zealous for the truth. Yes, yes he believes to have the authority given to him by Christ. And so he will talk about these so-called apostles who are false teachers but generally speaking Paul's got great relationships with other pastors and other preachers and other missionaries 
He's, he's humble. He's not combative. So I would say avoid giving to ministries where the way they seem to get their following is by critiquing other ministries. Again, what's the heart? Lots of times you don't even know those people. Okay, number seven. I think Paul's very clearly pointing that the best way to give is through the local church. So Paul says, you guys are a part of a community. So the first step is if you're not a part of a community, become a part of a community. And there's something about when we gather and collect together funds and then we can send them off, that's the best way to do it. Doesn't mean you can't give directly to other ministries, especially if you have personal relationships. I would encourage that. But there's something, there's an accountability, a safeguarding of giving through the local church. Where do I see that in the text? Paul makes a big deal about being able to hand deliver the money. Hand deliver the money because of those relationships and accountability. So where there's relationship and accountability, then we can have confidence. That doesn't mean that monies can't be misused. But it's really hard. Collusion is much harder than solo fraud. So where there's accountability, where there's community, when we come together and give, even outside of ourselves, we can trust that these are going to good places. You guys don't have time to talk to all the people I talked to this week, right? to have relationships. That's part of what my role is as pastor of this church, is to be connected to other ministries and things and be able to discern if this is a good investment. So as a church, we give 10% of everything that's given here, we give away. We practice tithing outside of ourselves. And the things you give here help all sorts of ministry happen within this church, of course, as well. So... Giving through the local church, I think Paul's really, he seems so, he's like, if I can, I want to go with them. It's like, Paul, don't you have more important things to do? He's like, no, this is really important. I want these brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to know that this money is coming from gospel churches. So he's like, I'm going to hand deliver it if possible. Because I have existing relationships with the pastors and the apostles in Corinth. Or sorry, in Jerusalem. Okay. Now, principles 8 and 9, they're connected actually to the next letter that Paul... So I want you to turn over in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. So Paul writes another letter to the church in Corinth, in part because things maybe weren't changing in the way that he had hoped, and so he had heard report back, and so he's like, let me write him another letter. And so if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul brings up this same idea in more detail about this collection for Jerusalem, for the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So let me read this real quick to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1 says this, we want you to know brothers and sisters about the grace of God that was given to the churches in Macedonia during a severe trial brought about by affliction. Their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He's talking about the generosity of the Macedonians. Um, 
And he says, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. So that's the ministry of the saints in Jerusalem. And not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urge Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, so they're good in a lot of categories, he says, and in your love for, for us, he's saying, you've loved us well, but he says, also excel in this act of grace. You hear that excel language that he talked about in 1 Corinthians? You should excel in this also, the act of grace. And here he's talking about the grace of giving, tangible gifts. I am not saying this as a command, rather by means of the diligence of others. I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving advice because it is profitable for you. He's like, teaching you about giving is good for you. Because it's helping you become like Jesus. It's helping you become like God who became poor that you might become rich. This is profitable for you. Who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. So he's saying like, last year, I know you guys were wanting to do this. You were starting to save up for this collection. And then verse 11, he says, Now also finish the task, so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be relief for others and hardships for you. He's not saying, I want your giving to, make, to, to push you into poverty. But it is a question of equality. Verse 14, at the present time, your surplus is available for their need, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. Oh, this is beautiful, isn't it? So Paul gives us these two final principles. He says, pay it forward, move the mission of God, but also pay it backwards. Why is it also paying it backwards? The church in Jerusalem, as I said, was the reason that there was even a church in Corinth. If you go to Acts chapter 2, it says when the church first began in Jerusalem, like three decades before this, they were selling property and real estate and dirt so that no one had need and that the mission of God might go to the nations. And guess what? Probably because of that bad financial planning, <laughs> they came on hard times. There was persecution. They no longer had money as power. And now they were suffering in Jerusalem. And Paul's saying, guys, don't forget that somebody paid it forward for you. Now you have surplus and they don't. Let's pay it back. Not because you have to. Because you desire to. Because you want to. Because your love abounds. Now here's the key principle. This is the last principle. You must actually give. Paul says, finish the task. He's saying, yes, it's great that you eagerly desire, that your heart is right, that you want to help them, but just wanting to help them isn't actually helping them. They, need, they actually need real money to buy real food. So it's not enough to say, well, I love the church in Jerusalem. My heart eagerly wants to help them. He's saying, you've got to finish the task. 
He's like, guys, I'm going to come, but you have to be willing to, to part with the money. It's not enough just to, to hope that they get it. And I was thinking about my love for Allie, my wife Allie. I think it's fair to say she's the only woman I've ever actually loved. Why do I say that? I've had other relationships where I, I felt real love. But to be honest, I never sacrificed my independence. I never stood before the other person and said, in richer or for poorness, in sickness and in health, till death do we die. I never did that. The act of love is actually doing it. I thought about marrying other people. I eagerly desired it even. But with Allie, I completed the task. That's love. So it's one thing to just eagerly desire to give a gift. It's another to actually follow through. Some of us eagerly desire to be generous, but we just quite can't quite write the check. We can't quite get it out of our bank account into somebody else's. I can't quite pick up the tab. I, desire, I really do care. I really want it, but I can't do it. And Paul says, that's the final step. You actually have to do it. You have to, you have to sacrifice because you know the sacrifice God made for you. So with those nine general principles in mind, here's how I recommend starting to be generous. First, recognize that the love of money is likely the greatest obstacle you have to growing in your faith. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus talks about the seeds that are sown, and he talks about the thorns that grow up. And he gives three examples of the thorns. Um, Let me just turn there real quick. You guys don't have anywhere to go, right? Some of you are like, yes, we do. Okay. Um, So he gives three types of thorns. Let me read them to you. He says, the thorns that choke out the word that they received, the the faith that seemed to be growing, the things that choked it out are the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. What did he do? He just said, money, money, money. (laughs) It's like, not very creative, Jesus. What is the worries of this age? What was the number one thing in the exit polls from voting last week? The economy, inflation. The worries of this age. The worries of Jesus' age was money. The worries of our age is still, honestly, money. Deceitfulness of wealth, that's obvious. And the desire for other things. How do you get other things? Money. So the thing that Jesus said are the thorns that choke out faith as it's rising. Money, money, money. And the different ways money works. And it works a little different for each of us. Maybe not everybody's worried about the Oldsmobiles. But there's some part of money that can choke out your faith. So that first thing, you have to just recognize. This isn't only about helping Jerusalem. It's also about freeing you from your worship of money as God. Money is, is the most popular God. Because in every religion, there's people that worship money. It's the most popular God. I think Jesus knew that. Second, you need to become aware of the needs around you. So you need to learn to trust the local church and try to understand where the money you give to the local church is going. It's never a problem to ask questions about how we use money. 
Where are we going? If you have great causes that you know about, where you have personal relationships, tell us about that. We might be able to gather as a church and come alongside and help those ministries, those churches thrive. Um, millennials love to give to causes, unlike any other generation. They want to know where their money's going, and that's fine. If you wonder where your money's going at Sedaris, like, come talk to us, we'll explain. All the things that we're able to do with the very limited resources that we have as a church. It's a good investment. I feel very confident saying that. That we multiply and maximize every dollar that's brought here to the best of our ability. And then you need to become aware of the needs of those around you. You need to actually talk about, do you have any needs that I can help meet? I have a little extra money. I'm in a season of plenty. Is there someone I can help here? It doesn't have to always go through us. You can just help that need directly. But you start with your brothers and sisters in Christ. God's planned this. This is his plan. That no one should feel suffocated by their need because there are others here that have plenty. And then third, you need to just start talking about this more. Money is, has become sort of taboo, faux pas. Don't bring up money. Whose idea was that? Okay, so there's an idea in the world that talking about money and how you use your money is faux pas. So it's us. Is that God's idea? Is God trying to protect us? Because he's like, you know, people just can't handle money, so we shouldn't talk about it. Is that God's idea? Okay, so God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus, and what did he talk about all the time? Money. Okay, so either Jesus isn't from God, or the lie that talking about money is faux pas isn't from God. Which is it? This is part of the decision we have to make. I think the claim that talking about money is faux pas, and I fall, I fall victim to this, but I believe that that truth claim comes from the enemy. He loves it when we don't talk about it. Because he knows if we don't talk about it, we won't do anything. So we need to start talking about it. Talk about it with your spouse. Do you talk about giving with your spouse? Do you talk about it with your friends? Has it ever come up in your cohort? It's like you're getting scared just thinking about it. But Jesus says, talk about it. Once you start talking about it, it loses its, its power to rule you. And then finally, make a plan. Make a plan to grow. I bought 10 books. Um, the author of this book called Giving Together is a friend of mine. His name's John Reinhardt. Uh, this summer, he actually worshiped with us when he was in town for a few months, him and his family. You may have seen them, very tall guy. Um, he has two adopted children, um, I believe from Rwanda. Uh, does anybody remember seeing them around this summer? Anyhow, John's a friend of mine. So I'm recommending a book because I know him personally and I know he practices what he preaches. He has a book about giving together. It's kind of more like a workbook, so if you don't like reading a lot, this is a great book for you. <laughs> but this could help you start to make a plan about giving. And I, I bought 10 copies and I put them up here on the table so when you come up to, to take communion, if you want to take one of these books, take it. But if you take it, do the work. Begin to grow and make a plan for how you can be generous like God is generous. So, You've got to make a plan. It doesn't just happen. You have to really start planning, just like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 16. Let's pray.